Chapter 9 of A Bachelor Girl in Burma by Geraldine E. Mitten. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 The Way to China. We were not long in getting to Bamo the next morning, and so smoothly did the steamer start that I never knew she was moving until I came out of my cabin. We agreed to have breakfast earlier than usual, and before we had finished, we came in sight of the town rising from the low sandy shore. My companion pointed out to me the lower landing-place, or gat, where the steamers are compelled to stop when the river is lowest. But as it was in fairly good current now, we came within a mile of the town, from which we were separated by an appalling waste of soft sand like a miniature desert. There were several flats or great barges moored near, and, as crowds of curious faces, more or less Mongolian in type, peered out of them, I realized I had got into the land of the Chino-Burmans. We had hardly stopped before a clerk from the deputy commissioner's office came up to me on board and said he had been sent by the deputy commissioner, who was himself away, to look after me and tell me all I wanted to know. He had procured a stout wooden cane-seated chair slung on two bamboos to convey me across the wilderness of sand. This was carried by two sturdy men of the Shan tribe. It was my first sight of the Shans, the great race which ranks only second to the Burmans themselves in the occupation of the country. They were not very tall, but as strong as bullocks, with hugely developed swelling muscles standing out on their red leathery shoulders and arms. They were dressed in loose blue blouses, very wide short trousers, and folded turbans of what looked like dark blue serge. To tell the truth, I envied them their job even less than I appreciated my own share in the performance, for I am no featherweight. The sensation of being hoisted up shoulder-high had to be endured with some fortitude, and when they set off at a jog-trot out of step and stumbling in the soft stand, I lost sight of all dignity and only clutched at equilibrium. Mr. E., the clerk, having seen that the boy had got a bullock cart for the things, followed, and when we finally reached firm ground he was there panting beside me. The ride was costly, for I had to give the men a rupee, but all experience, especially that of a painful kind, is apt to be so. Mr. E. and I then entered a gary and he told me that I should have to go to the Dak Bungalow as the railway party, of which my friend the engineer was the chief, had arrived before him, and they were already occupying the circuit house. As it turned out, this arrangement was what I should have chosen, for the veranda of the Dak Bungalow commands a view in its way as interesting as that of the Mandalay circuit house. Bemo was the mecca of my pilgrimage. Only a short distance off over the blue hills lies the Chinese border, and the weird races that pour in from the northern hills are much more individual and characteristic than those one sees in the south. The few tourists who do extend their trip in the country as far as Bemo nearly all come up by steamer and return again the next day on the same boat, whereby they miss a great deal. It is true that Bemo is a dead end for those who have not private facilities, for the flotilla company steamers do not go above it. But I should imagine that one could pleasantly fill a week in Bemo itself. 
Anyway, I was to be one of the lucky ones, for a letter from the headquarters had requested the deputy commissioner at Bemo to leave the government launch at my disposal when I required it, and I had wired a few days before to tell him the date of my coming. He was away at Mayitkina, far northward, from whence he would return in a borrowed launch, having left the little indaw for me as I requested. Yet I could not start away the next day, as for two days a month the upper defile is closed to allow the passage of the trunks and logs belonging to the forest firm of Steel Brothers, and no traffic can go up. As it happened, the day of my arrival in the morrow were those days. However, that did not matter, for I imagined I should find ample entertainment in Bemo itself on Thursday, to say nothing of the necessity of getting some stores, as I understood there was practically nothing at all on the launch. The Dak bungalow looked rather dark and mosquitoey when we arrived at it, as it stands in the shade of a clump of heavily foliaged mango trees. But this impression soon faded in view of the intense interest of the prospect from the veranda. Mr. E. left me, promising to come again and take me to see anything I wanted. The bungalow is small, standing on legs, with an exterior staircase leading straight on to the veranda, which is also the common dining room. Luckily, when I arrived, I had the whole place to myself. Later, I managed to get a photo of this veranda by means of a long exposure, but the result hardly gives an impression of the delightful bareness of the place. The uncovered floorboards do not show. My cushion lying on a chair is transformed into a detail of elegance, and the tablecloth, which was none of the whitest and very coarse, might be of damask. On to this veranda, two bedrooms, each with its small bathroom behind, open. Looking out from the veranda, I could see a wide stretch of bare, burnt-up ground, broken by a few small trees and shrubs, and ending in a range of high hills of a marvelous milk-blue, as different as could be from the rich, clear, dark blue of the Scottish hills after rain. This wide space was crossed by a raised causeway, and as I sat lost in dreams many times in the few following days, I heard the tinkle of distant mule-bells, and then a slow, heavily-laden caravan would steal across the road, kicking up clouds of dust amid which trotted the drivers in huge cartwheel hats and wide white Chinese trousers. It was the road to China, and China lay only some thirty to forty miles away there in the hills. Or there broke in upon my silence the slower, more sonorous sound of an elephant bell, and a mighty elephant with his mahout in his neck would stride across my picture. My deck chair was the throne from which a series of real living pictures were continually to be seen. I was near other races, other countries, which had hitherto only been names to me. The smaller details in the immediate foreground also reminded me I was far from England. The unripe mangoes hanging in the trees, the squawking of the crows, and the occasional startling shriek of another bird resembling a jay. Neither he nor the crows minded the mere clapping of hands. It took a bodily rush to make them change their quarters. At first I could not understand the use of a wide-meshed wire netting that one could pull down over the openings of the veranda. But experience soon taught me 
for when I left a tin of chocolates on the table one day, the lid was off on my return, and the chocolates, which were wrapped separately in silver paper, were scattered in every direction. The Derwan looked an old villain, but was really civil enough. As he could not speak a word of English, I had to await the arrival of Chinnaswamy with the luggage before I could communicate my lordly wishes to him. I found his charges were the usual ones, viz. eight annas for Chodi Hazri, one rupee eight annas for breakfast, eight annas for tea, and two rupees for dinner, with an additional charge of four annas daily for the sweeper. The tea and toast and jam were all a little inferior to those at Mandalay, but did well enough. When I had finished, the deputy commissioner's wife sent her buggy round to take me for a drive, so that I gained some idea of the place, which is quite peculiar and not at all easy to grasp at first. It is intersected in all directions by curious raised roads, necessary because in the wet season the intermediate parts become lakes. In some of the hollows, dry at this season, were well-kept market gardens attended by Chinamen. There is a fort where the military live, two good polo grounds, and a circular drive cut through the jungle, round which we went. At one place we came to a finger-post, on one fork of which was written in English, The Way to China, and my heart gave a great throb to think I was so near to a country which had always seemed to me as unattainable as the moon. There is a little English outpost in the hills called Sinlon, only to be reached on horseback. Would that time had allowed me to go there! The place is unique, and there is much to see. One of the most striking objects is a pure white bell pagoda, which stands out against the blue hills from many points of view. The color of the hills, as I saw them, that afternoon was indeed beyond anything I could have imagined, and it was pure, not emphasized by any compliment. There it was, rising sheer from the low ground, one glorious sheet of blue that stirred one's heart like a glad song. In the midst of the town, for town it must be called, though it is not in the least like one, there are a number of worn and crumbling grey pagodas, and near them the long neat wooden courthouse with three or four khaki-clad policemen outside as symbols of law and order. All kinds of religions are represented. There is a bright new Mohammedan mosque, and a very celebrated joss house, also a sort of open temple, where the ceremony of initiation into the Buddhist monastic order takes place. By the time I returned from the drive, the sun had fallen, and the air felt very cold indeed. I was glad to draw down the mat blinds provided on the veranda, and should not at all have minded a fire, but there was no provision for one. At any rate, I was free from mosquitoes. I had been bothered slightly by the attentions of one or two at Mandalay, though I had been told I should meet with none up-country in the cold weather. However, it was not advisable to do without mosquito curtains, for there were other things about as I found on going to my bedroom soon after eleven, for on the bare whitewashed walls was an immense spider, whose outstretched legs, wider in circuit than the palm of my hand, were striped with yellow. Chinnaswamy and the Durwan had long ago retired to the go-down, near the compound gate, or to make festival in the town with friendly spirits. So, if the beast were to be killed, I must do the slaying myself. 
and that I very much objected to for several reasons. I knew he was a tarantula, about whose bite I had heard deadly things, and I could never have slept in peace until the deed was done. It took me some time, and the heel of a slipper to accomplish it, for he ran so fast, but I succeeded at last and threw his crumpled body out of the window. Only once again did I meet with one of his kind, and that was when I was dressing for dinner one night in Rangoon, and a similar monster ran across my dressing-table. The boy slew him with the rolled-up newspaper, and we carried him downstairs to hear him pronounced to be undoubtedly a tarantula. In the early hours of the morning, I awoke trembling with cold and getting up, and gradually dragged everything I had on the top of me before I could get warm. The whole world was wreathed in mist, and even at eight o'clock the ground was still white with frost, real hoar-frost clinging to every blade and twig. I think that it was this morning that poor Chinnaswamy came to me and said he was cold. I reminded him he had brought a long coat, and he answered, coat only come to here, missy, marking off a place about his knees. Legs is cold. I looked hopelessly at the thin white garment he wore swathed around his legs and asked, but what can you wear? Trousies, missy, he said hopefully. I'm not going to buy you trousers, said I, so you need not think of it. Drawers is, missy? Well, I said doubtfully, you may buy a pair of woven drawers if you like. I'll give you three rupees, and anything over you must pay yourself. He could not get them, however, in Bamo, so had to wait till he returned to Mandalay, where he bought them at a kind of general store, half Europeanized, where one could get most things or substitutes for them, and he proudly laid them on the seat of the gary for me to see, with the bill for three rupees, eight annas. It is not necessary in Bamo to be out too early, for the sun is not unbearable all day at this time of the year. Thus, it was comparatively late when Mr. E. called for me, and we went for a walk round the town. We visited the marketplace first, and here I saw such a bewildering crowd of strange peoples and strange costumes that the impression is still all blurred. Mongolian faces met one at every turn. It seemed to me that Chinese blood was far more in evidence than Burmese. The most notable and striking people were the Shans, fair and ruddy of face, small and sturdy of stature. Men and women alike were wearing the dark blue tunic and short skirts, or very full trousers, which makes such a convenient working dress. Some had blue turbans and some enormous cartwheel pith hats. They struck me as having more backbone and more go in them than the Burmans, but they have not their essential aristocracy. They look what they are, hewers of wood and drawers of water. Their cheery, good-tempered faces showed that their lives agreed with them. Behind, at a little distance, the men reminded me most oddly of the Highlanders of Scotland. The blue trousers are so short and full that they fall like a kilt. The bare knees are shown above the leggings which take the place of stockings. The blue cloth turban does duty for a Glengarry, even to the little hump in the middle which has an absurd resemblance to the button, and there is a kind of pouch like a sporan. The Kachins resembled the Shans in some ways, but were not all dressed alike. Some of the women had a most odd arrangement of coils and coils of cane round their middles, which made them look like tubs, 
and the same cane rattans were wound round each knee. Huge earrings of silver and chains of every sort of bead were to be seen everywhere. Silver seemed to be the predominant metal. This is different from the Burmese custom, which is to give only the children silver ornaments and themselves to wear gold. There were numbers of the true Chinamen about, mostly dressed in the lovely sky blue, which makes such a refreshing break in the color scheme. One poor little Chinese woman was hobbling about on terribly deformed feet. Until I had actually seen her, I could not believe in anything so repulsive and hideous. I had always expected to see the feet compressed, indeed, but larger and not so gruesomely distorted. The people were squatting in rows on the ground besides their wares, mostly contained in great baskets, and they looked at me with interest, but without undue curiosity. I noticed a surprising number of cases of goiter, which is odd, as these people, like the Swiss among whom it is most prevalent, live in the hills, but in their case it can hardly be from drinking of snow-water, which is said to be the cause of the disease in Switzerland. Another unpleasant detail is the number of teeth stained and blackened with kutch, which is as universally chewed up here as betel-nut further south. Mr. E. explained to me the various edibles that were for sale. A great dish of saffron, the color of Pungi's robes, was for curry. A mass of dirty-looking sand was flour and peppercorns ground together, and, most common and most sickening of all, was the national food Nagapi, pronounced Nappy. I saw enough of this in Bamo, and smelt enough of it to make me remember it all my life. Piled on the plank floors of the living rooms, open to the street, in one house after another, I saw heaps of the decaying fish which are left until they attain that state of decomposition which makes them most toothsome to the strong-tasting Burman. In the meantime, dust and sand, to say nothing of microbes, must have penetrated every pore of the filthy mass, which is then pounded up and used for food. In the market this delicacy, with others, was dealt out on broad bits of plantain leaf which served equally for a plate or a wrapping. Besides the local foods, there were great baskets of walnuts, nuts, dried figs, and many other things. After seeing the market, we went on to the Joss House. It is surrounded by a high wall and contains innumerable courts, not set square to each other, but opening at various angles, probably for the greater show of mystery. In one court near the entrance, there is a theater, not with the stage, as one might innocently suppose on the ordinary level, but high up on the flat place above the entrance, so that only the people sitting in the galleries round the court could see anything going on. Those in the well of the court could see nothing. Everywhere was the distinctive carving and painting of the Chinese, but the place looked worn and poor, not well kept and bright. The building is of considerable antiquity in parts. All the roofs had the characteristic round Chinese tiles running down in ridges. In one place a shrine so sacred as to be shut off by folding doors had spread before it an old carpet which had belonged to the Irrawaddy Flotilla Company, whose name was still prominently woven in it. On each side was a hideous devil before which burnt a bowl of saffron. Biscuit boxes with tapers stuck in them 
were placed before other figures which, life-sized in gilt, made a kind of frieze. We saw many slow, dull-looking Chinamen lolling about in the courts, but no one seemed to resent our presence there in any way. We afterwards walked through China Street. There were good shops, all very neat and clean. The Chinamen had shrewd, clever faces, and in their blue clothes and funny little caps with the red button on the top were decidedly attractive. In common with many people who know nothing about them, I had always had rather a prejudice against the Chinese, a prejudice which the specimens of the race I saw in Burma did much to remove. The intelligence, capability, and self-respect written in their faces, and the shrewd twinkle of humor in their narrow eyes, impressed me most favorably. They were also much taller and stronger physically than I had expected, more manly altogether, and the opinion of those who deal with them is that, though they will try to get the best of you, as is but natural, yet if they make an agreement they stick to it honorably. Mr. E. asked one Chinaman, whom he knew, if I might go into his house. Permission was readily granted, and we passed down a narrow kind of alley or entrance to a very small room, open in the front, but otherwise unlighted, filled with costly furniture. Lacquer and gilding and inlaid work met my eyes everywhere. The whole was the exact antithesis of the large, bare, unfurnished rooms of the wealthy Burmese. The owner pointed with pride to numbers of strips of red paper suspended on strings from the ceiling, as if they were put there to dry, and Mr. E. explained that these were all greetings from his friends at the Chinese New Year, which begins in April when the sun enters Aries. The old man was evidently very proud of them, for he smiled with the pleased expression at my evident astonishment. Only second to his greetings did he value his goldfish, which were in a bowl outside the door. I thought him pleasant and civil, but nevertheless the feeling of racial difference is far wider and deeper between English and Chinese than between English and Burmese. There is one shop by way of being a store in Bamo, and here I went to get what I should need for the trip up the river. There was nothing on the launch except a couple of benches and a wooden table. But, as it would have been absurd to buy such things as crockery for two days' use, I was told that I could borrow most of what I needed from the Dak bungalow, and need only get food, oil for the lamp, and other goods of a perishable kind at the store. I had given the boy orders to go to the bazaar, and buy what I should need in the way of eatables for two days, and he brought me a list with such strange items as ghee in it. He seemed to know very well what quantities to get, and was most helpful. Though his list included chickens, rice, beef, bread, vegetables, and etc., it only amounted to a few rupees in all. Jam, biscuits, soda water, knives and forks, and smaller things, to say nothing of a tweed cap for comfortable wear, I managed to procure at the store, but the process was prolonged. The only man who knew where anything was, or what the price of anything happened to be, was the owner, and he did not seem greatly interested. Besides, as while I was there, my friend the engineer, with one or two of his assistants, was trying to obtain supplies for a journey which might extend over a couple of months, my small purchases fell into the background. There were two assiduous natives who would have been willing enough to get me anything they could 
but as they had not the faintest idea what I wanted, and if they had, would not have known whether they had it, or where to have found it, we did not get on very fast. I managed to buy two enamel plates that I thought might be useful. These were afterwards the glory and delight of Chinnaswamy's life. He looked on them with covetous eyes, and at last one day managed to break through the desperate reserve of a native, to ask if I intended to take them back to England. When I told him no, I should leave them as a legacy for him, his solemn face became quite radiant, and he said the word, Thanks. Very unusual for a native. To return to the store, I found the only way was to hunt for oneself in the hope of finding anything likely, and managed thus to rummage out one or two items, and, ordering the medley to be set up, I retired. I had a pleasant surprise while in Bemo in coming across a lady I had met in Rangoon, and she called on me that same afternoon and carried me off to tea. When you have lived, even for a short time, on the ever-same toast with the smoky taste, English bread and butter, and homemade cakes are a treat. The garden was full of flowers, roses and violets, and great sprays of waxy orchids but it is unfortunate that English flowers seem to lose their smell out here. The roses have rather a sickly scent, and are generally of the pale pink or white variety. One rarely sees a deep, rich-colored rose. Yet, with many difficulties and drawbacks, it is wonderful how charming and homelike some people manage to make their bungalows. After tea we drove round the circular drive, and I went home, made happy by the loan of a mattress to soften the benches on the launch, benches with which my friend Mrs. A. was well acquainted. End of chapter 9